Hi, my name is uh, Colm Harmon. I'm director of the UCD Geary Institute. So uh, it gives me enormous pleasure to welcome you all today. Uh, and those of us joining on the web, we're streaming live at the moment, so half of Santa Monica, I guess, are watching this. Um, for today's event, which honours Professor James Smith with the Ulysses Medal. Uh, let me take the opportunity to welcome his wife, Sandra, uh, his colleague and mentor, Finus Welch, and his wife, Linda. Uh, and it's a great pleasure to have, in a sense, two giants of labour economics in the room, uh, not just one. James Smith holds the RAND Corporation Chair in Labour Markets and Demographic Studies and was Director of RAND's Labour and Population Studies Programme from 77 to 94. He received his bachelor's degree from Fordham University and his PhD from the University of Chicago. He's also a monitor today visiting professor of economics at the UCD Geary Institute, which, as I kind of like pointing out, makes me technically your boss. <laughs> so I have some RA work that's needed uh, before you finish up. Jim is a fellow of the Society of Labour Economics and a member of Who's Who in America and Who's Who in Economics, a two-time recipient of the National Institute of Health Merit Award, which is the highest award the NIH gives to a researcher. Jim made it by any measure a preeminent scholar in economics, in the absolute top of the profession by any field of study. In health economics, he's quite simply one of the best, sitting firmly at the top of a pile in what's one of the most important and sizable fields of research in the discipline of economics. His stature in the profession is demonstrated by the numerous messages in the past few days from his many colleagues. At Rand, like Ari Captain, at Princeton, Anne Case, Angus Deaton, Richard Blundell, University College London, all thrilled in congratulating you today on this award. He's made many important contributions to science, published extensively on the economic history of African Americans in the US, the role of women in the labor market, the economic and demographic and health effects of immigration. His recent work has concentrated on the economics of aging across the world, including incentives for wealth accumulation, the use of vignettes and subjective health scales. Published many and widely cited studies in the dual relation between health outcomes and economic status, the so-called social gradient, that span topics including the impact of health on financial outcomes of families and the role of childhood health in life and economic and health outcomes. According to Anne Case, his colleague from Princeton, Jim Smith is one of a group of fine labour economists who over the years has moved his focus towards health. He's done so more comprehensively than anyone and his work on economic status and health, on income, education and health, and on cross-country comparisons and morbidity, has had a deep, profound effect on both economics and medical science. This was followed by a quip by her colleague Angus Deaton about how hard it was for a Scotsman to say nice things about an Irishman, but I'll give you that email separately, Jim. Perhaps more impressive than this scientific output is the impact Jim Smith has had on the study of populations worldwide. Richard Sussman, himself a, a major pioneer in the study of ageing, but from the perspective of the funder, the NIA, the National Institute of Ageing, spoke to me this week and recalled that Jim had a, another profound effect on this research domain and on Sussman's attitude to it, when he declared that a lack of a national study on ageing in the US was, to quote, a national disgrace. The product of that process was the health and retirement study, the granddaddy, so to speak, of ageing studies. Dr. Smith has been a leader in efforts to establish international studies and new surveys on population aging around the world that integrate economics and health, medicine, biopsychosocial measurement. A pioneer in longitudinal study design, he is head of the International Advisory Committee for Health and Retirement Aging Studies in the US, China, 
India, the UK. And indeed Ireland has benefited greatly from this tenacious commitment to the study of this field uh, through SHARE, uh, the Survey of Health and Retirement, and now also through TILDA. Again, to quote Richard Sussman, Jim has been one of the architects of the viral spread of the HRS model, and though I would not necessarily say he is the carrier. <laughs> of course, given your long and glorious service to the field, you're also solely responsible for any remaining flaws. In the I'm going to hand the floor to my colleague, Professor Des Fitzgerald, Vice President of Research at UCD, but just let me conclude with a note of thanks from me. It's been a privilege beyond compare for me to work with and have the support of researchers of the stature and calibre of Jim Smith as Director Geary. We've, we've all been enriched at the Institute by their efforts on our behalf. Jim, from the get-go, has been there for me and there for the Institute. I look around this hall and I see colleagues from within UCD or colleagues like Professor Roseanne Kenny from Trinity who will lead the TILDA study and know that we have the support of Jim Smith for all these endeavours. We'll hear in his lecture of work with a graduate student at Geary, Mark McGovern. Jim has been a great friend personally, professionally and indeed institutionally for UCD. I only hope that the honour we bestow him today goes some way towards thanking him but also recognise that Jim Smith is coming home to be honoured in the country of his parents. So welcome home Jim and Des. Uh, so, um, just, uh, to echo that point, uh, well, echo one point that he made, that uh, Colin made, I'm the VP for research, it makes me his boss and your boss. <laughs> um, and to also echo uh, my uh, gratitude to, to Jim over the years uh, for all he's done for the, the university and his involvement with uh, the Geary Institute. Uh, and today we're uh, going to honour Jim with uh, the highest honour that we uh, can bestow from the university, uh, which is the Ulysses Medal. Uh, this is uh, named after um, James Joyce, as you know, he wrote a few books, but he also was a graduate of this university, um, initially infamous, but now uh, our most famous uh, graduate. Um, this medal was, was inaugurated in 2005, and since that time, uh, it's been awarded to 12 Nobel laureates, uh, most recently to Eric Handel, but also to your friend, uh, James Heckman. Um, and it really reflects uh, the, uh, the esteem that we hold uh, Jim in. Um, I think that this medal, uh, I hope, uh, indicates to him that he's very important to this university. But uh, it, what it does is reflect uh, on his... Um, uh, his outstanding achievements uh, throughout uh, his uh, academic life. So, Jim, I'm going to <coughs> provide you with the Ulysses uh, Medal. Congratulations. Jim is going to talk, give a lecture uh, on uh, the impact of uh, childhood mental and physical health on adult uh, social economic status. And we were talking about this over, over lunch. Um, there is an extraordinary amount of information uh, that uh, Jim has been working on uh, in the United States, in, in Ireland and in Great Britain uh, that can tell us a lot about uh, ourselves. And uh, we were just making the point that 
it can actually change the, the view of history. I mean, very often people uh, have said about uh, how well uh, the uh, Irish population, the emigrants, had done in the United States, for example. <coughs> Um, but in fact, maybe that's not the case, and there's data I think that Jim has now that that is, is not necessarily true that there was such a big difference between those who stayed and those that uh, emigrated. So they can certainly change the view of history, but it also can inform a lot about what we're going to do in health in the future, uh, where is, are the biggest impacts going to come from, uh, from the investments that we make. And this is critically important right now for this country as we go through some... Uh, very serious economic challenges. So, Jim, you're very welcome. We're delighted that you're here to give this lecture today. Thank you very much. So I'm going to actually save uh, the thank yous for the end because if I did them now, I wouldn't get through the lecture. But I'll save them for the end. But I will say to both of you, since you both picked up on this, um, just a warning, being my boss is an unmixed blessing. <laughs> so I'm going to talk about the, um, my work on the effects of childhood health. When I th talk about childhood health, I'm talking about both the physical health and physical ailments people might have as children, as well as their uh, psychological disorders. And I want to look at what the impacts of those things during childhood are on the major adult SES indicators we have, which would be education, income, work, and marriage. And so all you know, there will be lot, uh, expansive measures of these SES indicators, but I'm also going to talk about it, as it appropriate, in this audience in an international context, and I'll be dealing with research in three countries, America, Great Britain, and Ireland. And let me start with America. And my American research is going to be um, using a very important panel survey that started in the mid-60s and measured in, uh, SES uh, indicators, including income and education and work, and did so every year for 40 years. It's a remarkable uh, data achievement. And it has um, very unique characteristics, but one of the most unique, which when, unfortunately, when I do this slide, it's kind of awkward because I was here and doing research before this study actually started, that's 40 years old now, but there were elements of the design that no one paid any attention to, which had a profound effect on what you can do. And that simple decision was that Anyone, it wasn't just a respondent in, that, in a family, which is what a typical survey would be. It was that anyone in that family, a wife, a husband, a child, became a respondent forever. You had what we call now the PSID gene, and if you were born 10 years later into that family, you had the gene and you would be questioned for the rest of your life. And that's a very, since we have parents and siblings, it provides an enormous analytical power to control for things that are very hard to measure, like all these things about your family and all these things about your neighborhood and places where you live. We can sweep them out and isolate better the impact of the childhood situation itself in terms of their health. 
This is the PSID. As I said, it's gone on now for 42 years. Uh, all the members of the family are panel members forever. Uh, simply put, you have to take my word for, for it, those who aren't American economists, this is the best economic data ever created in the history of the world in a panel context. <laughs> no questions allowed. Okay? <laughs> it is really good. But it had limitations. The major limitations, since I'm going to be talking about the effects of childhood health on adult health, it had no measure of adult health and it had no measure of childhood health, which <laughs> limited the kind of analysis you could do. I was the, uh, this is why being my boss is not such a great thing to aspire to, I was the chair of the PSID in the late 90s, and one of the things I did as chair was to get the PSID to put into their survey measures of adult health. And so they have measures of general health status, and rate your health status from excellent to poor on a five-point scale, the incidence and prevalence of major um, chronic conditions, and a standard list of health behaviors like drinking, smoking, and exercise. We got them to put that in in 99, and they put, have put it in the survey every year since. <coughs> Again, not easy to be my boss. I was not satisfied. Because what we really to know, needed to know was what the childhood was like of these people who are now adults. And when, while these, the, these kids were PSID respondents when they were 10 and 15 and 5, no questions were asked about their health at that time. So the sample I'm going to be using in this, this part of the talk, uh, you have to be a child of the PSID. So you had to be... Uh, and not have left your family by 1967. So you have to be born between 1952 and 1974 because you have to be old enough also to leave your family, get in the labor market so we can observe your completed education and your earnings and who you marry and all those sorts of things. So I'm following life from the beginning to about age 50 and the SES part of life from about age 25 to age 50. As I said, we have all the siblings. So I have a respondent, but I know what their sibling was like. I know whether their sibling had any childhood ailments, either physical or mental. So I can do within sibling analysis and sweep out all these neighborhood and family effects that are in common. And I have all these measures for the parents, the respondent, and the siblings. So. Uh, as I said, I was still needed more. I needed information on the childhood. What was their childhood like in terms of SES? So, in 19, so they, they had been asked. They had been asked one question about their childhood, which was to rate it on this scale, the same scale: excellent, very good, good, fair, and poor. The conventional scale. Their own childhood, just like they were asked to every year to rank their health as an adult. They were. I asked them through the PSID, to rank their health as children. And I converted this five-point scale for the purpose of this talk and analysis into either you're in good health, which is the two top points of the scale, excellent or very good, or you're not. And if you break it into a two-point scale instead of a five-point scale, there's no real test-retest error. The answer they're given, since we measure it over multiple waves, they're giving the same answer about their childhood 
every single way. Not satisfied, again, I then put into the 2007 wave of the PSID a retrospective history where I'm now asking these adults who were children of the PSID to tell me what their childhood health history was like in terms of 17 important chronic conditions that affect people as children, once again, both mental and psychological dis disorders that you might have had with children. And I'm going to show you in a second what they look like. So the natural question to ask, which I asked myself, and certainly the PSID asked me many, many times, is why do you believe these answers to these questions? Can people really bring back their history to you and tell you, yes, when I was uh, 11 years old, I had breathing problems, or I had headaches when I was eight, and I, other side, I had some psych depression. I suffered from depression when I was 16. Why, why should we believe that the answers they're giving you to these questions, and they, they're clearly giving answers. There are answers. But why should we believe that these answers are correct? And so I'm going to address two questions here. One is try to convince you that this way of retrieving the past in terms of getting people to recall the salient events of their lives in terms of their health history in this case, but other salient events as well, are actually pretty accurate. And then, after I have completely convinced every single person in the room of that, I'll take that measure and show what impact it has on people's SES as an adult. But now I'm in the convincing mode, or attempting convince mode. So the first thing I did is, you can see on this slide here, uh, the PSID age 50 column are the prevalence rates of these diseases for people 50 years old and older uh, when they were asked to recall these diseases. And as you can see, I've, I've highlighted the very common infectious diseases, at least in the United States. Measles, this is stuff that most of us got as kids in that time. Measles, mumps, and chickenpox. Uh, in the Health and Retirement Survey, which was mentioned by Colm, I put the same questionnaire in that survey to get them to recall so I can recall, uh, see if there's any within between survey differences. And then the middle column is what I call the external source. And for this discussion here, consider it the absolute and complete truth. That is, I went back to the period of time, as close as I could get, to when they were children and got the prevalence rates, the actual prevalence rates of these diseases. And, you know, depending on your personality, you could review these things as very different or very similar. My personality says those are awfully close. I was actually surprised myself how close these were. They're, they're all very common. They rank the same way. And so measles, mumps, and chickenpox seems to be something we can use this method of recall to get. They are not, those three diseases we know, are not particularly serious, though. They're very common, but the consequences are not very large. So I want to go to the, the other extreme next. Diseases which are, thank God, relatively rare during childhood, but have a large consequence on people's lives. Diabetes, hypertension, and epilepsy or seizures. 
Now the prevalence rates are all way below 1%, the true prevalence rates, but they are when I do it from the original source at the time or through recall of either one of the surveys. I'm getting about the same prevalence. And then mostly all the other diseases, most of life, are somewhere in between these no consequential common and very consequential middle diseases, and I now put them all up on this. And in terms of the right, you know, it's not one-to-one. -one. It's not like you get the same number every time from the recall as you get from the actual external source. The external sources are not gospel. The way people collected in, uh, information on these diseases at the time was not perfect. But the, re the external sources of the time ranked 95% correlation with the so with the data we're getting from recall. I know I have not convinced everyone in the room yet, so I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to stop until I convince everyone in the room. So I want to show you what happened to measles. This is the incidence of measles in the United States, the period when I was a kid, and then on the measles, everyone had measles. Everyone had chickenpox. A vaccine was introduced in the United States in 19, this is the incidence of, of disease, in 1963, and you can, this, some, first, you probably thought this was the U.S. stock market in the last two years, <laughs> but it's not. This is what happened as soon as the vaccine was introduced. The incidence went down from relatively high levels to almost nothing. Well, did this recall method capture this. Well, now I'm taking the PSOD, people of different ages. And so the, the top row here is what their ages are. By an unbelievable trick of arithmetic that only economists are able to do, their current age tells me when they were 16 years old and when they were born. And so I can actually put the years of their childhood exposure in here as well. Which, and so I'm telling you the year they were zero and the year they were 16. So this was the period of time I was trying to capture, and you can see for both measles and mumps, there was a mumps vaccine in the U.S. in 1967, a measles one in 1963. As soon as that came in, into being, the prevalence rates of these diseases plummeted. Chickenpox, the vaccine for chickenpox, was not introduced in 1995, and you see no variation across these age groups in the prevalence of chickenpox. Okay, so I'm still in, I, I got most of you, but I see that person over there, not yet, totally persuaded. So I'm going to tell you about two more pieces of this. And so given that there are these diseases, you would think, you would hope that the presence of the disease led to a self-rating self of your childhood health, which was worse. So anytime you had any one of these diseases, you should, you should have responded that my childhood was on average, health was on average worse. So I put in yellow every single case in which the sign is correct. That is, the, present, the recall of that disease uh, leads to a lower ranking of your childhood health. And it's 13 out of the 16 diseases we find that. You will notice there is one exception, chickenpox where the presence of chickenpox actually leads to better childhood health. The only explanation I have for that is that when I was a boy in New York City, in the Irish immigrant neighborhoods of my youth, when 
kids in the neighborhood got sick with chickenpox, my mother would come to me and say, Jimmy, go out and play with the girls. Okay? And she'd shove me out the door, and I would. And I thought she was trying to kill me because I'd be sick the next day. But there is, there is a view, and I don't know if she's so sure what the modern medical view, but the view at that time was if you, want to, if you were going to get chickenpox, get it when you were a kid. You don't want to get chickenpox when you're older. And so parents would try to expose their children, as my mother did, to this disease. And also, now I'm showing you the relationship between these recalls. These, oh, I should have said what this is, I guess. Uh, these are probits, so it's just giving you the pro what happens to the probability you'll say you're in good health, uh, given that you have these diseases. And now instead of looking at the impact on childhood health, which is pretty direct, I'm looking at the impact on adult health. And we should, we should expect to find a smaller impact because not everything that happened to you in childhood carries on into adulthood. So there should be fewer of these diseases that have effects that carry on into adult life. So there, there's fewer yellows here. But the, they are the right yellows. There are things that really should matter when you become an adult. And yes, I apologize, Mom. Chickenpox is still there in red, making my health better now than it would have been if you didn't send me out the door to play with the girls, which I did. So the final thing I'll say on this part, part is this is, a, this is showing what your adult health looks like. And whether your adult health is good, by using the same definition, good or not good, given your rating, separated by your rating of your childhood health. So the yellow are people who had good childhood health before age 16, and the red are people who had bad childhood health you see, before 16. And you can see there's a difference. Right when they begin as an, an adult, there's about a 10 percentage point difference in their adult health. So it's carrying over. But the difference becomes larger and larger as they age. And it's more like a 25% difference by the time they're in their 40s. So this is telling us that it's an immediate carryover into adulthood. So when I look at the SES effects, I might want to see if the SES impacts are also immediate, but they grow over time. And as the realization of these diseases becomes attributed to childhood become more and more common. So a lot of the, the analytical procedure I'm using relies on looking within siblings. It's not just looking at whether I had measles or not. It's looking at I'm having measles and my brother or sister is not. So all the power of this analytical method is that I have the disease and my sibling does not. So one thing we want to look at is whether what's, what happens to the probability you're going to have a disease given that your sibling has it. Given how close siblings are, we should see high correlations. If my brother and sister had measles, I'm much more likely to get it. And we, we find that. So that's the easy part. We find that your probability, if your sibling has the disease, is much higher that you have the disease yourself. But the real message is the opposite, is that it's not totally predicted. There's lots of data where one sibling has one of these conditions and the other sibling does not. And that's where all the information is coming from, the non-commonality of the disease. 
Now I have finished the part where I'm trying to convince you that this recall method is good, and I see that everyone is a full and complete believer on that. So I can go on to the next issue, which is conditional on your belief in the validity of this measure of childhood disease, what sorts of impacts does it have on life as an adult? And I'm going to look at two types of models. I'm going to look at what your life was like in 1999, but also what was your life like between the time you went to the labor force when you were 25 and where you were in 1999 to see if there are any trajectories to these impacts. So I won't be showing too many slides with not lots of numbers, but I wanted to show it to you in, in the first one just so you could get a sense of what the analysis was. The first two columns, this is, a, this is the impact of childhood health on adult education in 1999. The first two columns is just a regression of all these characteristics, very standard. Anyone who would ever run this model would put these characteristics in the regression, basic family background characteristics, the education of your parents, income, uh, demographic characteristics, not taking account of anything about siblings. And see, people who had excellent or good health as children, what happened to their schooling? And this is telling us that about a third of an additional year, okay, if I did this very conventional thing. If, however, and the fixed effects will always mean here, that instead of just running a regression on everybody, I run a model where I take the difference between the siblings. But sweep out all those family effects. Sweep out all those common neighborhood effects. Because there are lots of things about family that could have led to poor health and education, but not the causal about it. So I do that, and lo and behold, this education effect of about a third of a year becomes much smaller because it was partly capturing these other things that were going on. It's not zero, but it's a much smaller effect. So the principal pathway by which childhood health affects your adult life does not appear to be education. And I'll talk a little bit in a second about why. Now let's go to your, your income as an adult, your ho household income in logs. And I'll make it easy for you, put, putting in non-logs in a second. But the, the conventional way of doing this would be the log of household income in 1999. The only thing you should look at is the yellow the effect of childhood health. A 13% more family income, that's what the 0.13 is telling us, in the conventional model. But that becomes, if we do within siblings, that becomes a much larger number, not a smaller number. And the effect is 24%. That is, if your health as a child was good, your family income as an adult, on average, will be 24% higher. That's a big number, and I'll show you how big in a second, but that is a really big number in terms of what your lifetime prospects are like. Yeah, all right. When we go to the grocery store and we ask for the price of something, they say in logs or in euros, or dollars in my case. So I'm not going to give you the dollars instead of the logs. That number, that 24% translated into, on the within sibling, the correct way of doing it, about $10,000 on average in a year. One of the things, if you, for those who are not economists, this is kind of a, a warning to you, but to keep in mind, is the one thing economists are really good at is they can take very small numbers 
and make them into really big numbers. And they can also take really big numbers and make them very small numbers. So I'm going to do a little about that. I'm taking this $10,000. That's the average effect. And you can see it has this curvature. It's a little less when you first come into the labor market. When you're 25, it's about a $7,500 effect. When you're the last number 60, 12,000. So it increases over time, just like the health effects increased over time. If I want to summarize that into one number, the lifetime impact on you of having poor health to the child, I take all these numbers and discount them at some interest rate, 3% in my case, and this would be the total number. 300, this child lost almost $400,000 of their lifetime income because they were, he or she was in poor health as a child. That's a non-trivial effect on your life and was something that the child clearly had no response, responsibility for. The next thing I wanted to ask is where does this come from, this loss of $10,000? What are the pathways that produced it? Well, one pathway that could have produced it is that I earn less as a worker. And maybe I can't work as much because of my health, and I don't earn as much as a worker. It also may be that when I get married, since this is family income, when I marry, I don't marry a person who, has, who could earn that much money either. So the individual effect can be compounded by the, what economists call the marriage market effect in a sort of mating in the marriage market. And both of those things are operating. There's about an $8,000 loss because of my own income and about a $2,000 loss because I marry someone who also earns less than average, not because of their childhood health, but because through marriage of associated, uh, the association through marriage of my childhood health problems. In fact, the working less part is about four weeks a year. About one month, the people who had poor health as a child work one month less a year. Their correlation in the spousal childhood health, since I did it for both the wife and the husband and the family, is about 0.3. And that's where the other $2,400 of loss is coming from uh, to the spouse. So one question, um, which I haven't discussed yet, is these effects that I'm getting on SES income are always larger in the within-sibling models than in the regular models, just estimating on a sample. Why would that be? Usually you think you get these common effects and they're going to make the coefficient smaller, but I'm finding they're going to make the coefficient, they actually make the coefficient larger. There are two reasons why that's happening. One is to do with, within-sibling effects, you have to have at least two children in the family. You can't do it if there's an only child. Within sibling effects are really hard with only children. So you have to have two children. The effects may vary with size of family. In fact, they do a bit. So one of the reasons the effects are larger is that the effects are larger when there are more children around. But there's something much more fundamental going on because remember we're using this scale. Excellent, very good, good, fair, and poor. Where does that come from? How do I know what excellent health actually means? It's very subjective. How do I know what poor health actually means? People may have different thresholds on which they express those answers to those questions. 
And if I look at variation in a sample of people, the variation that's due to threshold differences doesn't mean anything. It shouldn't produce any effects. The variation that's due to reality are what should produce the effects. People, I hypothesize that people in the same family are much more likely to use the same scales when evaluating these outcomes. And it's the fact that the differences within siblings are mostly real differences in childhood health and less differences in uh, health due to different scales. That's a hypothesis, doesn't mean it's true, but that's what I think. So the next thing I'm going to do is go through this um, list of childhood diseases. And in particular, I'm going to fo focus on psychological problems during childhood. And this is work I did with a student in the US, Jillian Smith, and on depression, drug and alcohol problems, and other types of childhood problems. And I'm going to do the same thing I did before. I'm going to we're going to control for these unobserved family differences. But I also have the ability here, because it may be I'm depressed as a child because I'm sick all the time. I have physical ailments. And what I'm really picking up, if I only look at the psychological dimension, is that they're really due to physical problems, that physical illnesses that I have. But I have 14 of those, so I can control for them. Once again, I won't go through the uh, trying to convince you that these are good measures because we find the same thing. They really match up with the prevalence rates as reported at the time. And I'm going to look at these outcomes. And all I'm showing you here, since there are no numbers in here at all, is I control for every other relevant thing. I don't want to show you all those relevant things. I am controlling for every other relevant thing in this. I'm just isolating the effects of having a childhood problem, psychological problem during childhood, and both with all these other variables in, and then putting the family physical illnesses in to see if how much of it is due to that. So, on the end, do an OLS, you know, just a regular regression, and do fixed effects within sibling. One child has a problem, the other problem, child is not. And let me just put them both on. So, and I'll take family income first. None of it's due to these unobserved differences in families. I'm getting the same estimate when I do sibling effects that I get when I do across the sample. It's still this large number, 26%. None of, very little of it is due to the coexistence of physical ailments. Something else is going on that's, that is isolated on the psychological problem which then leads to much lower income as an adult. And the education differences, oh, I, I did want to mention that. There's a little effect uh, on education when I go within siblings. So the only outcome where I, I get smaller effects, actually, on SES are within siblings. Why is that? Why, why, can, why can we seem to compensate so much on the education outcome, but so little on the important uh, other SES dimensions like income uh, as an adult. And the main reason, I think, is parents have more control of education. The kids are always at home. If, they, if they're altruistic towards their kids, they treat all their kids the same, they can compensate for the fact that one child has a problem and the other child does not. The manifestation of these problems in adulthood, when these people are 40, the ability of parents then to even know about the earnings of their children and to compensate one child versus another is very, very limited. 
and individual income, we find the same thing. $5,000 a year, it's not due to the uh, childhood, other childhood diseases, and it's not affected by controlling for all the unobserved family effects. So in terms of the pathways, once again, weeks work, the ability to work is critical. The other pathway is, that is absolutely critical is marriage. Someone with a childhood psychological disorder, in this sample, is 10 percentage points less likely to be married when I observe them in the PSID. So they're having difficulty not only in their own ability to learn, but to ability to get along with someone else and be married. So I'm going to now take this effect on the childhood psychological condition of $10,000. It's about $300,000 in a child's lifetime as an adult. If I take all the children in America who have these problems and I multiply it by the number of children, this loss is $2 trillion. Americans are losing $2 trillion because of these childhood psychological problems. And we all know that's an underestimate because this is just the money. This is the problems as manifested through money. It doesn't deal with all the non-monetary problems of having a child who is having a tough time in life and for friends and family and, and other people. And the, so let me now, because I have two countries to go, uh, talk about a British cohort study that will parallel very closely what I just did. One of the difficulties with um, the study I've just told you about, certainly I can show you letters from journals that never get off this issue, is it based on recall data and you're, you're getting into all that. This is a British cohort study that I'm writing with the same co-author and with Alyssa Goodman in, in, in London. 17,000 ch children born in a particular week in, in, in England were selected in a sample and have been followed for nine waves so far, and they're going to be followed again uh, next year. Four waves during childhood and five waves during adulthood. And I'm going to particularly center on the time they were 42 years old. On these children, born, you know, they were captured the day they were born. So this is the beginning. Uh, there's measures of physical, cognitive, and psychological health connected to medical exams, not just self-reports as I had to rely on in the other study. We have self-reports on all their SES um, um, variables. And we also know what their circumstances of their childhood was like, what was the home like in which they grew up. Because that can tell us something about where these psychological illnesses come from. There are three points at which we, uh, the, their psychological problems were evaluated. That's ages 7, 11, and 16. And you can see what they are, whether it went to a psychiatrist, had an emotional maladjustment, or any, psycho, uh, any kind of psychiatric treatment. And these are the prevalence rates, 10% again, very common number, similar to what, what there is in America, and you can see it at different ages. So it's not like they always have a problem at every single age, but it's a reasonably common phenomenon, 10% of the sample in this study. So the first thing I want to tell you about is what didn't have an effect. We always talk about what does have an effect. And, and the effect here is increasing the probability you have a psychological problem at age, by age 16. What has no effect whatsoever from this analysis? 
birth order, your parents' age at, when you were born, your parents' education, whether your parents are high SES or low SES, whether your mom or dad read books to you or a newspaper, whether, whether they read a book or a newspaper, whether they show any interest in your schooling. This is all the stuff we agonized over <coughs> as parents. We drove ourselves crazy about this. What am I doing to my child? No effect whatsoever. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Certain things do have an effect. Low birth weight, early, very early illnesses or handicap, especially when the child is very young, and you can see a, uh, I won't let, I'll read them for you, a series of, psych, uh, of uh, adjustment uh, problems that kids had, and also difficulties in the family. Instead of arguing with each other about whether you're reading to the child or not, stop arguing to each other. Leave them alone. And I'm putting those in here also, these other variables, because the effects I'm going to tell you about are not due to that. They're the impact of childhood psychological disorders that are not due to those things, that are independent in addition to those things. And what do we find? Less ability to work, 1.5 weeks. Lower probability of being employed. A lower probability of... This should start sounding familiar. Lower probability of having a spouse. When we go to income, increasing effects over people's adult lives. These are again enlarged. If I take family income, starts out at 13%. By age 42, it's 18%. How does that compare to the American results I just showed you? That's the Great British result, 18.4. The American results were 19.9. Almost identical. The patterns that we're seeing in both those surveys are almost replicas of each other. So what's my summary of this? The effects of these, this, the psychological, there's a lot of emphasis now on physical disease, especially due to the Barker view and Barker hypothesis, and, it, and it's an important change, understanding those, uh, the uh, impact of physical illnesses into adulthood. But with that much emphasis on it, I think we're forgetting the old lesson that most of these problems are on the psychological disorders and not the physical disorders. The, as I said, the estimated effects in Britain and America are almost identical in spite of the fact that they're very two, two very different countries. The prevalence of childhood, this is the disturbing part, we know the prevalence of these disorders is rising over time. They're much more common now than they used to be. And the real hard question, which I'm not the expert of answering, is do we know enough um, what to do about it. Let me talk about Ireland and finish my lecture with some discussion of this country. What we're doing here is a little different. And, what we're, and I'm doing it with Liam Delaney and Mark McGovern, who are both in this room. We're examining the effects of a very sharp and very unique decline in infant mortality in Irish history that was especially concentrated in urban Ireland in the 1940s. And we want to see what impact that decline had on people's lives as an adult 40 or 50 years later. So here's what infant mortality looked like in Ireland. I could have extended this back into the 19th century. It was seen very, something very similar. Very flat, not much change in infant mortality at all. And then somewhere in the late 40s, the rates of infant mortality go down very, very rapidly. Much later than they did in Britain or in the United States. 
but a real, uh, quite pronounced secular change. If I decompose that national rate into an urban and rural equivalent, you can see that most of the really high rates were in urban areas of Ireland, and most of the really rapid change were also in urban areas of Ireland, like Dublin and Limerick and Cork, for example. And this, was, this is a very common in most countries. It's called the urban mortality penalty for, for infants. It just happened much later in Ireland than it happened anywhere else, a collapse of that penalty. And just pick out two counties, you know, Leitrim, a rural place, Dublin, and you can just see how starkly different the time series was in those two places. And the three urban centers that we're concentrating on are Dublin, Limerick, and Cork, and you know, a little more in Dublin than you see elsewhere, but all three, elimination of this urban mortality penalty. And we're going to use that as a point of identification to see if we can trace its impact, not just to better lives in 1948 and 1949, but better lives in Ireland 40 years later in 2006. So it was very common. This is, you know, urban mortality. Cities were hard, dangerous places in the 20th century. Diseases were being spread very rapidly. There's nothing unique. Ireland's not unique about that. Uh, very crowded living conditions. People living very close by. There's very poor sanitation. Very poor nutrition. Public health was almost uh, non-existent. Diseases spread very quickly in environments like that. One child gets sick. Everyone gets sick. And so th those contagion effects are what led to th this high mortality rate. As I said, Dublin, th what happened in, in, in Ireland happened much later than anywhere else. And Dublin in particular was very bad. You wouldn't see it around, but maybe some people here have been here long enough. This was a very different place in 1940. You wouldn't be wanting to walk around these streets carrying your baby. So what did it look like? Let me show you some photographs I took at the time when I was walking the streets as a young student at UCD. This is a non, a non, not atypical uh, picture, obviously, from Life magazine. I we picked it out for this. But this, you'd be walking around the streets of Dublin, the tenements of those days, and this, this is not a manufactured scene. It was picked for its commonality as well as anything else. People were packed into these buildings and you can see the um, exposure that they may have um, seen. And here's another scene. Again, in this, not all that common, a lot of children in this scene, which is why I selected this one out, but you know, people living in these very, very crowded. The only thing in common with Dublin today, as you can see, it's wet as anything. <laughs> And another North Dublin scene. Now, this is all kids and their moms in the street, packed full of kids, packed full of mothers, very wet. If you saw Angela's Ashes, I could, you know, this, these are the images of that movie. It's one of the three cities that we, uh, that we concentrate on. And here's a, here, this is my favorite. The urchins of Dublin. Right? You can look, if you look at the feet of these kids in the front row, I think all but one, 
only one child is wearing shoes right, in the streets of Dublin with the spread of disease in those times. And no one's one kid wearing shoes. Whenever I see a picture like that, this is you know from 30, 40 years ago, I always say to myself, what happened to them? You know, what, what was life like for them? Especially these two in the middle, kind of odd-looking kids. But you say, well, what was their life like you know, 30 or 40 years later? If you use your imagination, and I help you focus, so you've got to pay attention now. I'm going to help you. But you use your imagination. I'm going to show you what happened to them. <laughs> oh my God. All right. This is another image of Ireland in Kilkelly Mayo. And this, this is a very poor family in a two rooms. There are nine kids. The man in front is a uh, stonecutter. So this is, there's no money here. And we're not talking about anyone who has money. But you can see how isolated this is. You know, the, the, there is no, if you if you're, were at this house in Kukeli, you couldn't see, you have to walk to your neighbors, and it's a walk. And you might, you don't have, it's not like what you just saw in, in Dublin. But poor. But the spread of disease, no. Another house in Bonnerib and Sligo, uh, house, taking a more recent picture, but this is what that house looked like for... Here, this house was... Uh, the father was a farmer, and it was still two rooms and with ten kids. So parents in one room and all those kids in the other. Very, very poor. But what did that child see? Instead of those scenes I showed you in Dublin... That's what that child saw in Bonnerivin. That's if those who don't know anything about Ireland, that's Ben Bulban there. But the contrast between the life in the rural parts, this is in the west of Ireland, where it's not, it's not the escape from poverty, because in fact most people here escape from poverty by leaving Ireland at that time. But the, just because your neighbor's kids get sick did not mean you were going to get sick. And just because some stranger got sick close by did not mean you were going to sit. And that was a fundamental difference for children in life in Ireland, in rural Ireland, and life in Ireland, in urban Ireland. And that's the, that's the kids in urban Ireland at the same time as those scenes in Sligo and Mega. So what happened to improve this situation in Ireland? And these are hypotheses now. These, you know, this has not settled anything. This is something... Uh, for you know, for discussion and dispute, and, but based on our work, we're centering on events and reforms in the 1947 Health Act. There were initiatives in that Health Act that include slum clearance, sanitation, sewers disposal, uh, dealt with infectious diseases. There was a big increase. Exactly the sorts of things that were focused on the very problems I told you about in. Being in for children in urban in urban Ireland, within 10 years after the passage of this act, which has the right timing, uh, the urban rates of infant mortality and the rural rates converged. And if you look at the infant mortality by cause, you can see that it's all these diseases associated with 
these very unsanitary living conditions, gas or the diarrhea, uh, the general birth defects, it wasn't tuberculosis. It was also all exclusively infant mortality. It wasn't five-year-old mortality. We, you know, we could show you uh, slides on that as well, but it was all death in the first year of life due to these sorts of conditions. So what we did, Mark and Liam and I, is we took, in it, we, we know what the conditions were like in 1946, we know what the infant mortality rates, and we, taught, and we know in 2002 and 2006 Irish census, not only where those people lived in 2002 and 2006, but where they lived as children, where they were born. So we can tie their current circumstances back to the circumstances of their youth. And so we look at the impact of these high or low infant mortality rates on, in 1946 on their disability, the health disabilities that they had as adults in 2002 and 2006. So when we do this, we're going to control for county of birth. So there's lots of other things going on in the world besides what I'm talking about. But to get rid of them, the same way I tried to get rid of those family effects earlier, we control for county of birth, we control for county of residence, and we control for ESG fixed effect. But we're trying to eliminate all those things. We also want to make sure it's not just we were lucky and got a good result. So we also try putting not just the mortality at your time of your birth, put it three years after and three years before and see if you find something. That would tell you it's really something else going on and not this process. But it turns out the only mortality that matters, infant mortality that matters, is mortality around the time of your birth. It doesn't matter when you're three years old. It doesn't matter when you were minus three years old. It's mortality, infant mortality, in your county at the time of your birth. So let me show you this. This is um, something actually we did since I've been here on this trip. This is looking at the, the how many people were living in, in having, in, in dwellings where there were four more people in a room by county and then looking at the infant mortality rate of that county. So this is so, and then we run a regression, that line through it is a regression. A very strong positive relationship. You can see Dublin County, the city you're in right now, way out there, very high infant mortality rates and lots of people living in the same place. A very strong relationship. This is for 1946. And if I looked at shared sanitation facilities, the same thing, 1946. If you had shared common sanitation facilities, the infant mortality rates in that county were very, very high. But now let's look to 1961. It's gone. So after this period of improvement, this relationship, very strong relationship, has essentially disappeared. <coughs> and largely due to those acts. This is, a, is it large enough now? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to summarize it for you. So what we, want to, we wanted to learn is, could we say anything about what caused those high uh, mortality rates in a county? So we tried lots of variables. They would be these variables which you cannot see. <laughs> but the one, I'm, I'm, I'm not supposed to move away. Okay, so I won't. But the one I've highlighted in yellow that you cannot see is the only one that's statistically significant, and it's a shared sanitation variable. All the other measures, I, I think that things like mother's unemployment rate, mother's uh, age at birth, all those things do not matter. What really matters in producing that high 
infant mortality rate is chance sanitation. So we ran these models then, looking at the impact of infant mortality on these outcomes, on, on your disability as an adult. We find a very strong positive relationship. We find a much stronger positive relationship when we're talking about low-income, low-SES, low-education people. So the impacts on them were much bigger of this uh, improvement. And so let me conclude then. So the input, we, what we find is it really is an important indicator of what your adult life will be like. And early life conditions, once again, do matter, as I find in all three studies, especially for low SES people. And I want to tell you a little bit as I finish about what the next steps are, because this is just beginning, especially for me. We, we talked about this over lunch uh, with the president, Hugh Brady. I think, uh, and it's not sentiment, it's not just because my parents came for it, it is not that. This is one of the most interesting countries in the world to study. And it's interesting because over a period of 40 years, let's say between now and 1960 and 1940, the changes in Ireland, and these people are coexisting, parents and their children are coexisting right now. That's a 30, 40 year period. The changes between those generations are more like 200 years, both in terms of religion. Just think, for some of you who are Irish here, the religion of your parents and your own religion, your income and their income, your social values, how many children you got. It's a, a transformation that usually takes centuries, but it's happened here in 30 or 40 years. That kind of change is just unheard of. And if you believe even a little bit about this ability to retrieve the past through the methods I've told you about, we can capture that history in Ireland in a way that's very hard. So the question we're asking, and when I say we're, it's not, I'm not talking about myself anymore. I'm talking about the scholars I've met at UCD, the scholars I've met at, in, in Geary, the students who are working on these very problems. Sometimes I'm participating, sometimes I'm not. This is a really big research agenda. And we're trying to identify the events and policies that were most important in Irish history of the last century and this century that impacted people's lives as adults. So, so it's kind of a almost silly question to put. If I said no now, what would you think? It is really important. Now, I want to qualify this with, because every time we go on to a new topic in, in research, we think it's the only thing that's important. So if you're not working on childhood health, it's okay. It's really important, but it's not everything. Your life is not fixed you know, three months before you were born. It's not over. When you're 10, it's not over. There are lots of other things that are important. But for the people who were affected by poor childhood conditions, it is really important, at least it's the claim of this research. It affects all the key SES outcomes. I think the psychological dimensions of this have been neglected because of the interest in the Barker hypothesis, and I think we should spend more time on it. And I find it in all three of these countries. Ireland's not unique. It's America, Britain, and, and Ireland. There's a lot more to do, and I'm going to come back to do it. I will say some final words, and now my thanks. Uh, and here are my final words. <laughs> For those who didn't pay attention in class, that is not Latin. <laughs>
for those who didn't pay attention to class, I'm not going to tell you what it means. But to everyone else, thank you very much for this honor. And I wanted to thank my wife, who came all the way, and my two friends in the back of the room, Finus and Linda. And I know there are some people watching for America. In particular, two people better be watching from America, Jillian and Lauren, my daughters, and I want to thank them for their help. But this experience, I, I told Colm first time, the second time I came, the, those two times I would have come out of sentiment because of my history. You've heard my history. Those, you probably have guessed, those, that house in Sligo and that house in Mayo well, where my parents were born. So I have the sentiment. But I can work in lots of places. Why I come back here is it is so exciting, this intellectual environment at this university and at Geary and the kind of projects I quickly have gotten into where there are no constraints. If we don't have the data, we create the data. Or they go looking for data in the historical buildings of Dublin somewhere and they Name's constantly calling me up. I found it. I know every single person who lived in Dublin in 1971 you know, or 41, more likely from his point of view. And I know how much garbage was in the trash can <laughs> out in front of him. Really, that's a lot to know. From I only talked to you two days ago, but it is so exciting to work with you people, and partly because of my background, but more than that, this is a great, great university, and I could not be more honored to accept this award. Thank you very much. Why am, I not, Martin was in before why, am I not, <laughs> why am I not surprised? <laughs> uh, maybe you can just also just identify yourself and just say where, where you're working each day or elsewhere. Thanks. Uh, I'm Martin, a PhD student at the School of Economics and Theory uh, Institute. I just thought maybe for the benefit of people who don't study economics or econometrics, maybe you could tell us some more about the within sibling estimator that's so important in the Okay. Sure. So I'll be brief, given the nature and the time and everything very well. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about both. I'm going to tell you the advantage of it, but I'm also going to tell you what to be careful about. So the advantage of, you know, if I, if I take myself and my brother, we grew up together. We had the same parents. We lived in the same neighborhood. So there are all sorts of, we went to the same school. Sister Mary Ignatius was our teacher in the fourth grade. Right? So there's a whole sorts of, th ton of things that we're never going to measure in, in surveys that he and I experienced together and had influences on our lives. The, the, the power of the within sibling is not that to know what the impact of those things are, but to get rid of them. You know, if the effects are common, they affected myself and my brother the same, we can get rid of all those confounding effects and center in on something else, and that's what I did. The thing you have to be careful about is it, it is based on, like everything, based on assumptions. You want to be careful about that assumption. I just said 
they had the same effect on my brother and I. Well, maybe they didn't have the same effect. Maybe he was more susceptible to that effect than I was. So for all the power of techniques, you always have to be cautious about what it is you brought into. But those kind of hypotheses, once I specify them a little more, I could actually go in that direction and say, okay, what characteristic of my brother made him more susceptible to an impact of something than I was, like a childhood disease? If I can identify that, then I can even get these other effects. Um, so that would be my short answer to that. It, can be a, it, it should not be, by the way. I, I don't know if it is or it's not anymore. It should not be. The power of this has nothing to do with economics. It affects any field you're in of study. It has the same power and limitations of what I just described. It's, it's unfortunate, I think, it's that it's predominantly used by economists because it, it is a powerful technique. Fine. Brian, no, you should have. I here in Thanks very much for most of that most enjoyable and clear presentation. What I was wondering about, if you'd like to say a little bit about it, Hanil, you, you talked long and hard about it, is that um, we, could be, we could be capturing two rather different things here, <laughs> at least in the early part of your presentation. One is the damage that's already done by the time you're 16 by the ill health that you've experienced as a child, whereas the other is the extent to which that predicts how much ill health you're going to suffer particular psychological uh, as an adult. And of course it could be that it's, it's the latter that's doing all the damage. No, no, we, we don't think it actually is, but well but, but no but it is it, No, it is partially. So in uh, actually no, I didn't I didn't show, I actually you may not believe this, I didn't show you everything. The one of the things you can, uh, have done in the in the work is trace out the pathways through health. So we, you know, I think as you were saying, Brian, that if I'm sick as a 14-year-old, it's more likely I'm going to be sick as a 42-year-old. And an important pathway to any of these SES effects is 14, age 14 illness to age 42 illnesses. And that's definitely there. The primary pathway through which this happens is that particular pathway. But it also goes beyond that. It, that is not enough to get the kind of magnitudes of the effects that we see here. One of the things, um, that now I'm kind of outside the numbers a little bit, so be, be, be kind to me. Think of what, how life is like for someone who's always had childhood problems, whether they were physical or psychological. And life was always a little bit harder. Maybe they were isolated in some way, but it was always more challenging. And then they get to the starting race and in, in, in this world we live in, this competitive world, and we say, you've got to really work hard. You've got to do superhuman things to get to the top. And the challenges that, you know, the energy, maybe energy is the right word, it takes to compete at the highest level. You guys, for those going to school here, you know, this is no walk in the park. This is really hard, and you're just starting out, and, it's, and there are going to be challenges in the future. That kind of demand on energy, the toll that is taken by these childhood illnesses, in my view, on that kind needing the energy you need to really succeed at the very top is very, very profound. Hi, uh, just a question on your self-ranking system. Um, would you consider it likely that people who are of 
more poor health than average would be more likely to understate their health ranking because of depression or uh, negative outlook on life due to their experience. Right. What, what I do, um, that's a good question, okay, so I'm not going to give you, I, I, part of my recent career I've in fact studied vignettes and, and what it is that affects the thresholds of, of your vignettes. And that's a, good, that's a really important question it, and should, there should be research on that, so I'm not going to flip that off. The only thing I'll say is uh, the, the control I did for here, because I, what, what if, if I extend your example a little bit, what if I get sick? as an adult. I wasn't sick three years ago when they talked to me and now I'm sick. And I say, I was sick as a child. That's why I'm sick. So now I start remembering uh, and bringing forward and, and asserting, attributing to this childhood illness and now I say I was sick as a child and it's actually coming from the fact I'm sick as an adult. Because we have multiple measurements of, you know, we would ask these people multiple times in multiple years, whether they were sick as a child, that I can test, and that is not what's going on. They're not changing their ranking. But you're asking a question around depression where the, imp where the sensitivity of the threshold ranking is very, very close. Right? I would just say more work has to be done on that. Thank you, Jim. That was superb. I'm just wondering about the biological mechanisms that I'm sure you've in the context of stressors and inflammation and maybe long-term um, uh, stress and autonomic nerves just coming more to the fore and maybe as a background to uh, older comorbidity and older adults. No, I, I think that, no, that, you know, as you know and you're doing in your own study, I mean, that, that's a really important pathway. Even I, who you know, uh, do not get, uh, you know, do not stop uh, uh, in terms of thinking how aggressive we should be about asking questions, would find it difficult to ask people what that system was like when they were 14. All right? So the kind of thing you're talking about, although your study actually, I don't know if you, would be ideal for this kind of retrospect, because uh, Roseanne's study is starting people at a 50 or 45 uh, and volume. So you're missing it, but you're missing the part, the early part too. And this this would be really good to get the early part. I think in terms of the biomarker component and the pathway, I'm completely in agreement on the pathway. I have no, I have no knowledge to offer on that. Except, yeah, so, yeah. Sorry, we have time for questions. I have two more. So find us and then Ken. Uh, Jim, what about reverse causation? Uh, suppose that. Hypothetically, not, not for yourself, uh, that you make less income than your peers. Uh, you know other things equal, you do just as well. Therefore, you must be sick. Well, I spent most of uh, my last adult life you know, on this topic actually establishing that that's true, that the impact, uh, are you saying it's a psychological Justification. For you know, justification bias in, on the health side. Um, well, again, the only thing I could say in, in the panels, we have observed these changes from people's answers in one question to another, and we don't see that kind of behavior. But it's certainly, and, and I would say, again, it's, to me, it's more plausible on the psychological dimensions than it would be on, oh, and now I 
know I had diabetes as a child before I didn't. Uh, so again, more work, but to the extent we have been able to look at it, I'm not convinced that that's important, but certainly possible. Okay, uh, Kevin for the Chemical Council. Thanks for a brilliant presentation. Um, it's kind of a chick's reason to me and that knowledge and background is brilliant. Uh, just a question um, about how common handle this problem. You know, say that psychological disorders are being comparatively neglected with physical disorders. And I'm looking at what's the actual real rate of psychological disorders. You look at the number of, say, clinical psychologists and psychiatrists in America now versus, say, in 1955. So to what extent is there a true underlying rate of psychological distress in society versus there are more people who will diagnose and detect that as health systems get larger? Right. Now, that's, that's, a, um, that's a good question because we know, even for the physical ailments, the, like um, asthma as a disease, if you look at the uh, trends over time, it's going up. And part of that's real because the exposures you have uh, are... are, are harsher, but it's also that we're diagnosing these things and we didn't diagnose them before. And the psychological is the same thing. Kids were not diagnosed before and now they're being diagnosed. And that is, that's one of the reasons I think it's so remarkable that I'm getting such high prevalence rates of asking people before these, uh, before let's say, I don't know what the demarcation year would be, let's say, let's say before in 1990 or 1980, I'm getting you know, the kind of right levels of childhood depression says nothing wild. We're not talking about 2%. We're not talking about 20%. We're talking about things that uh, seem not implausible, okay? But none of that denies, because the things you're talking about are clearly happening in the data but, and for both the physical ailments and, and sometimes we're lowering diagnostic thresholds as well. So uh, they were aware of it, but now they're they're saying it is something, and before they wouldn't have said anything at all. So all these trends are happening. But I think my, my examination of all this is that it's not just improved diagnostics. It is something real. And in something real in particular on the psychological dimensions, and life, for some reason, even though we're much richer, and I speak of all the countries that I talk about, even though we're much richer, Life for children is much harsher, harder now than it was before. And we're seeing the manifestation of those problems in very unhappy kids who are really being challenged. And it's now way out of my discipline. The real hard question is, can things be done about that? And should we, you know, is the technology there to actually help? And I think it is. And so uh, we can do way, way more.